Welcome to MedCurity's webinar around the proposed updates from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Thank you so much for joining. Um, a few notes before we get started logistically. We will have a recording sent out once we're done. For those who'd like to review the content again, it will also be posted on our LinkedIn event page. We recognize your time is really valuable, so our heart behind these webinars is to keep them informational and concise. So this will be 30 minutes, and if time permitting, we will answer live questions at the end. But also feel free to send questions in the chat option as well as we go, um, and we can answer those time permitting, and we will answer all questions and follow up via email. You may recognize the MedCurity name, but for those who don't, MedCurity is a HIPAA compliance platform that partners with organizations to meet their HIPAA requirements through our streamlined platform and expert services. A large part of what we do and the heart behind our company is to cultivate a community of education and discussion for those in healthcare. We recognize there can be a gap in this in the healthcare community. So looking at this past year, there's so much information that's been pushed out to you all at any given moment, and so you're expected and required to implement information on the fly. So we take the responsibility of simplifying these updates so that you can take away only what you truly need to know, hence why we're here today on this webinar. So thank you again for joining. Alexa and I are your hosts today. We are both compliance consultants here at MedCurity, and we will be leading this webinar. Alexa's role here is to dive into industry updates and really boil down important information for our customers. This sounds simple, but ultimately, she has walked through a 400-page document and has boiled down some updates for you into 30 minutes, and so it's a big task that she's done an excellent job at. I work actively with our customers and partners to be a personal HIPAA compliance resource for them, and today we are both going to be breaking down some of the HHS updates that we'll be rolling out this year. The updates are currently proposed, and I want to emphasize this point because they're changes that are very likely to occur. That's why we're going to be focusing in on the right of act. Like I said, Alexa's read through this entire document and has simplified it down to what's most likely going to change around right of access, and that's what we'll be covering in these next 30 minutes. So with all of that being said, Alexa, would you mind briefly introducing yourself and really give us the basics around right of access so we have a foundation to build off of? Yeah, absolutely. So as Ari mentioned, I'm a compliance consultant here at MedCurity. And essentially, I just do a lot of research on all things related to HIPAA, hence reading a nearly 400-page proposal from the HHS. I really focus on current news, especially so that I can help the medical community stay informed on all compliance issues that kind of come in throughout the entire year. Now, the HIPAA Right of Access Initiative was established by the Office of Civil Rights to help patients get medical records in a timely manner at a reasonable cost. And before this initiative, patients were really struggling getting access to their medical records, either because it was too expensive, they weren't given on time, or they weren't given in the format that they requested. And this simple mistake just led to delayed treatments and other kinds of issues, which caused all kinds of problems in the healthcare community, both for patients and for doctors. But thanks to the right of access, patients now have the right to inspect or obtain a copy of their designated records, as well as share that information to any individual or entity of their choice. Additionally, as we've touched on a little bit, the HHS just released a proposal, which could make some significant changes to the HIPAA privacy rule, which would in turn amend the right of access. And we'll address those changes a little later when I discuss the six requirements that all healthcare organizations are required to follow under the right of access. 
Excellent. Thank you so much, Alexa. Understanding what right of access is is really helpful as we continue to build on it. To give some more context as to what's happening in our um, healthcare environment right now, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services recently released a 2016 to 27 audit report. It takes a couple of years to get the results out. But at a really high level, there are some staggering statistics around practices and their understanding and correct or incorrect implementation of right of access. So if you don't mind just giving a couple of examples from that document, that would be really helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, those statistics were definitely startling. <laughs> and it just brought to light the fact that the right of access can be a bit of a weak spot in the healthcare field. And the truth is, is that a lot of medical organizations unintentionally violate the right of access because for one, they're not aware of all that it entails. And then Two, they're not aware of what their rights are as an organization under the right of access because the right of access is not only, it doesn't only entail rights for patients, it actually lays out rights for the organization itself, but a lot of organizations don't know that. And not understanding this law to its full extent or understanding the protections that you as an organization have in certain circumstances can unfortunately lead to unnecessary violations that could have just been prevented through basic training. So as Ari mentioned, a study from the HHS 2016 to 2017 audit reports show that 89% of covered entities that were audited failed to show they were correctly implementing the individual right of access. And some of those mistakes included inadequate documentation, insufficient evidence, inadequate or incorrect policies and procedures, and incorrect documentation of the notice of privacy policy, all those relating to the right of access. Another study was conducted by MedRxIV shows that the main reason for noncompliance amongst providers is that they usually don't send patients their records in the format that they want. And this actually amounts to 86% of noncompliance within that 89% of noncompliance. And the main reason behind this is that healthcare workers are really hesitant to send records in electronic format, such as text or email, because they're afraid that it's unsecure, which is a completely valid reason right now, especially with how many hacks we've had and emails not being encrypted. And a lot of times just healthcare workers don't want to risk it. Unfortunately, that's the method that most patients want their medical records sent by because it's so convenient to receive your medical records through text or email. So in an attempt to protect patient data, most organizations just don't send patients their medical records at all. They avoid it completely. And obviously this isn't because they're trying to withhold information. They're actually trying to keep patient data safe. But sadly, even though this kind of action is well intended, it's still a violation of the right of access. And violating the right of access can lead to really big fines, which as we've seen from last year, all kinds of organizations, whether big or small, they're all equally at risk for right of access fees because the OCR really doesn't show any partiality to smaller organizations. I really appreciate how you've noted the distinction between practices not trying to keep their patients from their health information. They truly are coming from a place of wanting to protect it because patient information is so valuable. But unfortunately, this issue comes down to a misinformed place. And so we really do see the value of breaking down this information and making it a bit more educational because we want our audience to understand their rights and understand exactly what is expected of them. So Alexa, it would be helpful if you could give an example of how these common violations have turned into penalties. This past year, just for context and reference, there have been about 14 right of access settlements. 
that have come out this past year. And there's probably quite a few educational examples that have come from that. So if you could dive into that. Yeah, definitely. I actually have two. So the first one would be an example of a private practitioner located in Regal Park, New York, who was fined $15,000 in November 2020 by the OCR for not giving his patient her medical records on time despite multiple requests. And again, this was a very small private practice just with one doctor. Another example would be of another private practitioner, a little bit of a larger organization that was fined $100,000 in May of 2019 by the OCR for not sending a patient her medical records in the format that she wanted. And remember, we talked about that being one of the main issues of noncompliance. In fact, that format that she wanted it to be in, she wanted it to be sent electronically of video. She received all the other paper records that she requested So all of her other medical records were sent to her in a hard copy. However, the video content was left out by that healthcare organization for fear that the content might be compromised if it was sent electronically. They didn't want any of her PHI to be leaked. And from my research, I've discovered that a lot of organizations can probably identify with this a second example because most of those working in the medical field feel that sending PHI electronically is just way too risky and they would almost rather risk getting a right of access fine, then undergo a huge audit due to a breach from lost or stolen data, which is completely understandable. But today I'm actually going to share with you how you can send any form of PHI or data electronically and never have to worry about a right of access fine again. But I'll get into that a little bit later. And before we move on, I just want to emphasize with all of you that although right of access violations can be easily avoided, the penalties can be really harsh and the OCR is very serious about implementing them. And that's why they've made the penalties so harsh. OCR director Roger Severino recently stated that doctor's offices, both large and small, must provide patients their medical records in a timely fashion. We will continue to prioritize HIPAA right of access cases for enforcement until providers get the message. This statement really couldn't be more true. There have been organizations of all different sizes this year that have been penalized, which it just proves that any organization, regardless of their size, can be affected by the right of access. And as I mentioned earlier, I really believe that if healthcare organizations were educated on the rules behind the right of access and better understood the law, then there would be less violations. And really, that's the main reason why we wanted to host this webinar is just to give you guys that education. Yeah, thank you, Alexa. That background and those examples is really informative just as we continue to build on right of access, what it is, what's been happening in our environment, especially after a financially devastating year. The last thing any practice or hospital needs at this point is a penalty around something that can truly be easily avoided. But back to your point of there being a lack of understanding or a lack of education behind this topic, we recognize how important education is, especially as updates begin to roll out on a topic that maybe isn't widely understood. So understanding the implications of a right of access violation really does set the tone for how important these updates are. Considering, like you mentioned earlier, how only 11% of the right of access requirements were in place and being understood and implemented correctly. These potential HHS updates outline plenty of changes, but thanks to Alexa, she's done the work to filter out the noise and provide some really clear action items for you all. So with that, we keep talking about these six action items. Let's get to it now that we've laid the foundation. So jumping into the actual rules behind right of access and the proposed updates, Alexa, could you please lead us? Yeah, definitely. 
So as I've stated earlier, multiple times, I've read the entire HHS proposal. And again, I want to mention that this is focusing, uh, the HHS proposal talks about amending the entire privacy rule. So there's lots of other information in that proposal discussing privacy rule, but to simplify things, we're just focusing on right of access. So let's get to it. So as I stated earlier, we're talking about the six requirements that all healthcare organizations are required to follow under the right of access. And these are the six requirements that are already in place. But as we go along, I'm going to let you know of the potential changes from the HHS proposal that could possibly amend each aspect of these requirements. So let's go ahead and get started. Number one, you must send records in a timely manner. Currently, providers and healthcare organizations are required to send records within 30 days. However, the HHS proposal suggests shortening it to 15 days. And the reasoning behind this is that there are currently nine states, one of those being California, that already provide patient records within 15 days. And the HHS feels that if those nine states, especially California, which is a larger state, high population density, that if those states can do it, then all states can follow suit and send records in a faster time frame. And they want to do that just because one of the main issues with non-compliance of right of access is patients not getting their medical records on time. So they're trying to put a little bit of more enforcement and regulatory pressure in that area. Number two, you cannot overcharge a patient for access to their medical records. So in other words, you can't make a profit off of patients accessing their records. You can only charge them the amount that it costs you to provide them access. And if you're sending it, like, for example, in a hard copy format, the cost of making it could include paper, you know, printing the document, the postage of sending it, things like that. Also, I want to clear up a common misconception in the medical field that says you can only charge up to $650 for a right of access medical request fee. And this actually isn't true. You can charge more for that if you spent more creating those documents. The $6.50 flat rate fee only applies to electronic documents, which means that you can't charge a patient more than $6.50 if they want their PHI in digital format. That's where that regulation comes in. The HHS proposal wants to require organizations to post estimated fee schedules on their website, which would detail the approximate amount it would cost for a patient to request their medical records. And they want to do this because they want to create more price transparency between organizations and their patients, and also make it completely impossible for patients to claim that they were unaware of the cost of requesting their records, which happens all the time. A lot of times patients complain and state that they had no idea of the cost and they were only told after the fact, and then they felt that it was too expensive. So this kind of takes out the guessing from it. And then it also relieve some of that burden off of organizations with having to deal with patient complaints. Number three, you cannot deny anyone their right of access unless that is a patient requesting psychotherapy notes, which are personal notes taken by a counselor for professional use only. Those are not considered designated medical records, which are the only kinds of medical records that patients can have access to. Also, you cannot fulfill a right of access request if a patient is requesting records that will be used in a civil, criminal, or administrative proceeding. At that point, it's in the law's hands and it's not your authority to give that information away. Number four, you cannot create unreasonable measures for the identity verification process. So all patients need to be able to verify their identity when requesting medical records for obvious you know, security reasons. 
However, you can't create such unreasonable measures that would make it unnecessarily difficult for them to access their PHI. And the HHS proposal suggests taking this a little bit further by completely prohibiting covered entities from imposing unreasonable measures. And they lay out what unreasonable measures are explicitly in the HHS proposal. And a couple examples of an unreasonable measure would be requiring the individual to obtain notarization of the individual's signature or accepting individual's written requests only in paper form. So those are just a couple of unreasonable measures as described in the HHS proposal. But as I said, there's a whole list of them so that the HHS shows exactly what organizations should be avoiding and they're not giving a, a vague definition of what an unreasonable measure is considered to be. Number five, you must provide PHI in the format that the patient wants. So it's important to remember that at the beginning, this is one of the main reasons for non-compliance. And an important thing to note is that if you inform a patient of the risk of sending PHI electronically, such as through text or email, you are not responsible if that information is lost or stolen. So you don't need to be afraid to send it in that format. All you need to do is to get documentation that states that the patient understands that risk. And then if you have that documentation, you, you're no longer liable. The new proposal from the HHS suggests that patients should be given a few more rights of accessing their medical records by allowing them to take pictures, recordings, and notes of their own PHI. It also suggests that they should be able to send PHI through a secure standards-based APR through a personal health application or otherwise known as a, an app, a health app. And a health app, it would just basically be any application that a patient stores their PHI on or sends it through. And one important thing to note with this is that you would not be responsible for any PHI either stored or sent on that app if the health app that that patient is using is completely controlled by the individual, not the app developer or you as a covered entity. So that would mean like this, this app is no in no way associated with your organization. It's not owned by the app developer. It's completely and totally used solely by that individual. At that point, it's a personal tool that the patient is using. So you're not responsible if PHI is sent or stored on it. And if that PHI is then lost or stolen from being used on that app, that's a choice that the patient has. And so at that point, it's their responsibility to take care of their PHI. Last but not least, you must allow patients to send PHI to another person or entity. So currently the right of access requires healthcare organizations to first receive a written request from a patient stating that they want their medical records sent to a third party, and then they can send their PHI in either a hard copy or electronic format. But the HHS suggests making this a little bit simpler for both the patient and the organization by allowing oral requests from a patient to be sufficient authorization. So just simply asking for a medical record to be sent to a third party. It also states that covered entities should only have to send electronic copies of medical records just to relieve some of that administrative burden that comes with sending hard copies to third party organizations. It also suggests that patients should be able to send their PHI more easily by allowing them to directly share their PHI in an electronic 
health record, which is also known as an EHR, among covered healthcare providers and health plans. So essentially, that means that this would allow all providers, hospitals, small practices, clinics to share PHI amongst themselves through EHR on behalf of a patient. And that would really simplify the process of sharing PHI, both for the patient and for healthcare organizations. And overall, that was just a really simplified version of the right of access. And as I stated earlier, that these updates that I mentioned were just relating to the right of access. We have a lot of different things that could potentially be changing the entire privacy rule. And those changes will be announced in the coming months if the proposals turn into an official amendment. And if it is, those changes would be announced around the middle of the year. And then by the end of the year, healthcare organizations would be required to make those changes by the end of the year. And some of those changes would include updates to policies, patient forms, employee training, and potentially business associate agreements. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alexa, for breaking all of that down so succinctly into six pretty clear points. When updates are proposed at the federal level, it can be really overwhelming given that they push out in really large documents. So thank you for simplifying this right of access information down into something that's easily digestible. 